Hello, everyone. I'm Phil Svitek, and uh, we promised you an interview with the author of The Invisible Woman. Uh, unfortunately, Marissa Serafini could not join me today uh, due to other conflicts, but uh, we want to go ahead with the interview regardless. So here to join me today, Erica Roebuck, the author of the book. So my first question um, to you, I guess, um, you know, you, you kind of talk about um, there's a little, at least in the book that I had, there's a Q&A at the end that uh, your characters find you, the stories find you. So the, the story itself is, is a real life story. And, you know, so how did it come to you, th- this woman of Virginia Hall? You know, she, I consider her a real gift because I had been writing books about women in the shadows of American male authors that are well-known, Hemingway, Fitzgerald, Hawthorne, and I was writing more of the same. And um, I was working on a novel about Bram Stoker's wife, Florence. And just as a side note, I, you know, these stories about women should be known. They're fascinating. And very often they helped their, the men quite a bit. Um, but nobody wanted this Bram Stoker book. And finally, an editor was kind enough to say the market wants stories about women who are remarkable on their own, uh, not because they're misses. <laughs> so um, I took that to heart. And it was around that time I really started thinking about women from where I come from. I wanted someone sort of grown in the same soil that I was. And I, I just so happened to stumble across a Smithsonian article about this remarkable woman who spied for the Allies, who grew up in Baltimore, who spoke five languages, who had Nazis on her tail while chasing her over the Pyrenees. And, oh, she did it all with a prosthetic leg she called Cuthbert. Um, so, you know, asking you shall receive. Uh, once I found that article, I did a, a dive and tried to find, oh, there must be dozens of books and novels about this woman. And I found very little. So this was um, before the big biography came out last year, A Woman of No Importance. Um, So there were some biographies. uh, There were mentions in books about resistance women. um, But I've I've stumbled upon a jewel and I couldn't have made up a more interesting story. Yeah, no, it's it's obviously fascinating. We'll we'll really dive into it. But um, but also to that point, like, I'm just curious, what do you read more? Because it is a, you know, in, in at the end, I, for, I forget how you phrase it, but like, I'm a narrative writer, right? And the book is obviously a narrative. And we'll talk about the differences and the choices that an author has to make to, to do that. But for you, like, obviously, you can't do a book like this without the research. But I'm just fascinated by like, do you, you know, how much fiction compared to nonfiction do you read? I'm probably uh, 10 to one nonfiction to fiction. So I'm always reading 10 books, at least of research that go into whatever novel that I'm writing. Um, And I'm usually reading one work of fiction at a time. Very often it's something I've been asked to read for a blurb that hasn't come out yet or something that has just come out and the author might want an endorsement. And I always read before I do that. Um, I really do make sure I love the books that I promote. Um, but, but for me, the volume is definitely in the nonfiction area and usually pretty obscure books. You know, I need like a report from 1945. So I'm on the hunt for a paper copy on Etsy or, you know, eBay or something. So, yeah. And I, um, that was the other thing with this one. It was tough because, you know, she's a spy. So the research was limited yes. in that sense because, you know, it's she was trying to hide the fact that her life was that. Right. Yeah. So, um, yeah, it was it was definitely a game of cat and mouse. <laughs> <laughs> but the breakthrough was getting access to the to the CIA museum. Is that correct? 
or that it, it unveiled in waves. I felt like, you know, on the mystical side, the more Virginia Hall might have trusted me with her story, the more I would get. So I, I would be searching and searching and finding nothing and hitting a dead end. And all of a sudden, a French language book would pop up written by a member of the resistance. And so I could acquire that. Or I would go to the CIA museum. I finally got approval to go to the CIA museum. It is at headquarters. And so you can't just go there. You have it's a whole process to approve. And you know, just when I thought I'd exhausted my resources, I got approval to go there. Um, and then just when I thought I had all the facts, but I needed to color it all in, um, Virginia Hall's niece, Lorna, who lives up in Baltimore, invites me to her house. And she brings out a huge box of photographs. And these are family photos that I've never seen before. And, you know, she's speaking about Virginia Hall, calling her my Aunt Dindy and talking about the, the shooting and the rowing trips they went on and the trips to New York City. And that really colored her in for me. So it was really a process of little bursts. Right when I was about to give up, I would get a new burst of information. Yeah. So um, one of the fascinating things to me is um, you kind of joke that no one really liked Virginia. Like she was a tough person to like. And uh, the Mm -hmm. biggest criticism, like with your, uh, you know, beta readers or whatever, just people giving you that feedback was you need to make your character likable. So that's obviously a, I guess a shift, you know, in terms of the, the author's um, allowance. So can you talk about that? Cause I, I'm fascinated by that um, and you know, how you went about it. Yeah. So in, in novel writing and screenwriting, you know, they always talk about the save the cat moment at the beginning, you have to have your main character do something altruistic that will align the reader with this person. And Virginia Hall was um, the way the book originally started was when she is um, coming on shore on a rowboat, second mission in occupied France after her first mission failed because it was betrayed. So she, all of the people in her network have been captured, imprisoned, or tortured and murdered. And now she's coming back to try to finish what she'd started. And so she's, she's war hardened and she's life hardened. She shot off her foot. She has a prosthetic leg. Nothing is easy. She's been denied applications to various foreign services because she's a woman, because she has a disability and she is not um, warm and fuzzy and nor was she before any of that happened. So it was a real challenge to make the reader a line with her. Even the partner she comes up with, he annoyed her to death. He was not a good spy. He had um, loose lips. So she wanted to be done with him. And my editor was the one who came up with the idea. Look, we can't change Virginia. She was what she was, but we need to, we need to align ourselves with her. So why don't you just give us a glimpse of Virginia before she's jaded and, and life is just dumped all over her when she falls in love with Paris or, or something early that we can also bookend and, and end there. And that's what we did. So we have when Virginia goes to Paris to study as a college student and just really getting a taste of freedom and loving the city, falling in love with Paris, remembering how her father had taken there when she was a child. So hopefully the reader sees that before she really had to turn herself to stone in order to operate the way she did, Um, that she was flesh and blood and had passions and excitements. And the novel is about her coming back to that place. And it really, it really does happen over the course of her second mission. You look, she's never going to be warm and fuzzy and likable. That's not who she was, but she's somebody, but I like her. (laughs) So I, and I think, and a lot of people admired her. They respected her. They were intimidated by her. Um, but that admiration and respect is where I need to get the reader. So that was that was quite a challenge. Yeah, I mean, I think it was Robert McKee who said, you know, uh, sympathy, uh, empathy is a must. Sympathy, you can kind of take or leave. And so I, I certainly empathize mm-hmm. with her. And 
you know, one of the aspects that I really enjoyed was you didn't always know who was right because, you know, you have all these characters essentially telling her to relax and let her guard down. And Mm -hmm. there's instances where she does and nothing happens. And there's instances where she does and there are huge consequences. So it's like, you don't, the, the predictability of it, I think that's what for me made it work because you understood like, yeah, she's got to be on her game because she's depend. Other people are depending on like literally lives, you know? Um, so I, I don't know. Kudos for that. I know it's not a question. Yeah. The stakes but... are very high. <laughs> yeah. Thank you. Um, Thank you. how do you, um, was there ever a thought to like write it in first person because, because then you can really get in Virginia's mindset. I mean, you're pretty close in terms of, you know, feeling her thoughts and things like that, but I'm just curious, you know, to, to make it first person from Virginia. Was that ever a thought? Um, so every novel I approach early on looking for point of view and um, very often I stay outside of it. If I feel like I can't get deep access to the character and sometimes I'm able to, to really access them and get, get the voice in my ear. So backing up the house of Hawthorne um, I wrote it from Nathaniel Hawthorne's wife, Sophia's perspective. And I spent days and days, at the library of Congress reading her diaries. So when I left there, I knew her thoughts. I understood how she viewed the world and I felt like I could take on first person voice. Virginia has left almost no primary sources. Um, Everything that's written is written about her. And she was very complicated. And even with the people she was closest to in the war, she really let the door close on that. And she, she goes offline, essentially. Of course, that was before that happened. But a lot of the people in her resistance groups used to get together every year to celebrate their successes. And they would often say in letters to each other, nobody can find Virginia. She didn't want to be found. So because of that, I didn't feel right trying to crawl into her skin. I really didn't know exactly what she was thinking. So I had to, while it is a third person limited point of view, so I'm focused in on her and what she's probably thinking. um, I never felt like she would have given anyone that kind of access. So I didn't take it. Um, And just on a, from a business perspective, my, my agent prefers historical fiction written from a third person limited point of view. So anytime I start wandering into first person, she gets, she's like, well, why don't we try it this way? And, and usually she, usually it works out that I do end up taking sort of an outside view for historical fiction. Gotcha. Going to that idea that um, she kind of went offline. Do you, do you think the simple answer is because she continued her work with the CIA and it was just too yes. dangerous? <laughs> yeah. Cool. Yeah. So yeah, she, she wanted to be operative. And she was until her mandatory retirement, um, certainly not in the capacity that she was during World War II, but um, that was a huge part of the reason. Many of those people had had abandoned clandestine work. They weren't in any kind of resistance work, um, but she was on the ground floor at the CIA. So she needed to she needed to stay off the radar. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, it's obviously very fascinating. I mean, I, I to degree, like even though the obviously the book is called The Invisible Woman, um, I appreciated the, the highlighting um, of the fact that there were so many other women there as well. Obviously, there's the men that are kind of, you know, creating the resistance and things like that. But without the other support, you know, strong women throughout, um, you know, none of that would have worked. So can you kind of talk about them and how you found them in Virginia's story? And because obviously you had to make concessions about who to keep in the book versus others to not. And so, you know, um, there were just so many wonderful characters in terms of the women. 
Well, thank you. And that's something that I loved highlighting was just how everyday people filled whatever role they were able to do and just became part of this huge necessary machinery. So, you know, if a, if a woman has maybe children at home, all she might be able to do is offer a room. So she offers a room or a child might have a wagon and nobody would suspect a child carting, you know, arms through town. So maybe you put weapons in a wagon. Um, so it's just, an, it's interesting, the interplay between the everyday people. And Virginia had a, a particular talent for spotting talent. So she could look at, okay, here's a nun. Here's what nuns can do. Here is a prostitute. Here's what prostitutes have access to. Here's a fisherman. And she was able to connect all these people from obviously very different walks of life and figure out how they could help the allied cause. And by doing that, by empowering people to take back their own country, which is pretty much how the CIA operates today, then you can, you can have real contributions. You can have restore national pride because France suffered obviously a huge blow to pride getting mowed over by the Nazis in a very short time. Um, so it was all part of rebuilding the psyche and then also physically ousting the bad guys. But um, what I was doing when I was looking for the, the secondary characters, it was anyone who I could find the most information about because the volume of people that Virginia grew in her networks was just staggering. So if I bring up one safe house, there were probably five with five different families. I just had to pick the one I could find out the most information about or who was most pivotal in that portion of the mission. Um, and when I started to make those connections, when I figured out, oh, this code name here is actually this real name here. Um, it was so exciting to see the characters grow to life. And th they were the ones who really stole my heart. Yeah. And I, I you know, one of my favorite moments um, in the book is when Virginia is having the conversation. I, I, I forget. Um, it's the woman with the child and, and you know, Virginia is trying to mm -hmm. back, let her back off. Um, but she says to Virginia, like, no, like, you know, God, it's a, essentially like an argument of God of like, this is what I'm meant to do. And like, it, you know, this is, mm -hmm. you've made your decision essentially, and I'm making my own, you know, so let me help as well. You don't just get to be the only one. And I, I, I thought that was a really, um, powerful message for Virginia. Good. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Um, uh, let's see. Um, so. I'm curious about, I know this is a little bit in the weeds type of thing, but just your writing process in general, you know, like you talk to Stephen mm -hmm. King and he'll, you know, he's like very stringent on 2000 words a day. That's it type of thing. But like, what's your process? And I'm especially curious because, you know, sometimes when it comes to a research heavy book like this, some people can put off the actual writing and just think that the work is research, which obviously it is, but it sometimes mm -hmm. can prolong the process of like not actually writing and just becoming see so I'm just kind of curious about in general what your style is like yeah yeah so on the day-to-day -day when I'm drafting um you know on the blank page on every day I work pretty much I have kids in school school age still so when they're out the door after I'm finished all of my I do my emails first and then I shut all of that down burn my candle put on my music of the time period instrumental. And then, um, and then I write usually for about four hours a day. So I don't necessarily, I don't keep a word count goal because some days I'll be sitting here for four hours and I might have 50 usable words and the rest is trash. And then other days I'll, I'll have 13 pages that I barely have to edit. So it's kind of like looking for that runner's high, you know, the four days are a slog and then Friday it's whew, off to the races. Um, but for that to work, I have to have pretty much the four hours every day, 
of really focused creative time. And sometimes it looks different. So that's just when I'm drafting. Um, but when I'm editing, same thing, it's, it's spending that time hyper-focused for that amount of time a day. Um, and then with research, it's just constant, you know, I'm ongoing, I'm reading books constantly to feed it. I usually take about two to six months where I'm reading exclusively before I write a single word about that topic. But the constant overlap is I'll be writing something else at that time. I'll be editing, I'll be writing an article or a feature piece. So there's always that interplay of reading and writing. Um, But after four, maybe five hours, my brain is done. And that's when I go outside. I usually walk or run or hike two or three miles a day. And then that helps me process. And then when I come back the next day, I can start fixing things. So it's just that loop there. Yeah, no, that's, that's yeah. true. And is it, um, is it true that essentially you had like four manuscripts with this book before you found like this oh. version of it? Yeah, she, I mean, there's different writers who said, oh, this book tried to kill me. And I just roll my eyes because, you know, it's a book, it's fine. Uh, but no, this book tried to kill me. <laughs> and she, <laughs> I started out by thinking, well, Virginia's not likable. I should, I should unite her to a fictional present day character that we can really root for. Um, and after about a hundred pages or so, it just wasn't working. And then there were so many other interesting women in the SOE. I thought, oh, I'll put her with someone who's really interesting and likable, but it it just, it was too much. Her story is very big by itself. So I put that person aside and then I thought, all right, let's start with the first mission in Leon. And then I got to the end of that mission and realized it was all backstory because the question is who would go back to occupied France after their network is burned with a price on their head and being told by their bosses, they have six weeks to live. And that was the question I needed to explore. So that became the novel. Uh, so yeah, after about 400 pages, I found page one. Yeah. And that's not, part of the process. No, it's really cool. I, I love the curiosity factor of it all, you know, like that, that question. So to that effect, like what, what's your surmised answer as far as why Virginia, obviously the book is, is the full answer, but I'm just curious, like if you have to summarize it. Um, I am fascinated by people who have courage. I don't think I could ever have, and I want to understand that. And, you know, hopefully I'm never tested in those situations, but, but I just, I want to know everything about them and how they're wired and how they work. And I've always been drawn to military and intelligence, even in you know, my books about Ernest Hemingway, it's really about the world war one vets that were out there. Um, it just, it keeps coming up over and over again for me. And I live near the Naval Academy in Annapolis. So I think just subconsciously it's always there. Um, but I'm always wanting to explore that. And then, you know, on the mystical side, the first day I committed to writing about Virginia Hall, this is, this is probably going to sound very silly to you, but this giant hawk landed right outside my writing window. And she's been around ever since. And she has a mate who's smaller than she is. And Virginia towered over her much younger husband, Paul. So I've named the pair of hawks, Virginia and Paul. And um, <laughs> they're always swooping around when I'm writing. Um, and when I went to Virginia and Paul's graves, I, usually when I finish writing a book, I do try to go to the grave and just you know, have some closure with my subjects and, um, and her grave is in Baltimore. So when I went there, I was sitting there just reflecting and two hawks started circling. I got it on video. So I don't know if it's real or not, but yeah, (laughs) it might just be two hawks. (laughs) No, I I mean, I, you know, whether it's real or not, I mean, why not? Right. Type of thing. Um, Mm -hmm. and I don't know if you think about it in this way, but, um, but for me, this, in a way allowed me to process a lot of like current day stuff, like, especially yeah. like, for example, like Ukraine and things like that, yeah. um, mm-hmm. you know, in a way, cause 
for me, a, a pivotal moment of the book was this waiting for the D-Day, right? And yes. um, it's so interesting because obviously like, as, like, you know, I know history and certainly there's a lot of stuff about D-Day. And so I knew the date and yet I felt the frustration of the characters, like when is D-Day happening? <laughs> right. And, yeah. and it just, it just kind of transported me to today of, you know, obviously, you know, um, pretty much the whole world wants the Ukraine war to be over, but, but it's yeah. like, it, it, it's not going to be an overnight thing and there's going to be frustration. Yeah. So I don't know. I'm, I'm curious, like, how do you compartmentalize about writing about history and contextualizing today? Or is that not a thing for you? For me, I, I'm trying to understand the present through the past. And so when I was writing all this and the book that I just released in March, of course, the Ukraine, um, it hadn't happened yet. And I just kept thinking, oh, I hope people still think this is relevant. I mean, I think stories of hope and redemption are always relevant. Um, but to see how relevant, sickeningly relevant it is now, I just watch in real time with such a different, the people that are there. And the thing, though, that's different now is that I think the Ukraine knows how much everybody is rooting for them. Um, and in France, everyone, they were very alienated and they felt ashamed and abandoned. So part of the mission of the, the women and the men and the SOE and the OSS was showing that we are working as hard as we can. We're doing what we can to empower you. And when we all come together, we're going to be able to, to do this. And it was news to the people of France during World War II that everybody, that they weren't abandoned, that people were trying to get supplies to them. I think in Ukraine, they know everybody's trying to help them how they can. Um, so hopefully with that morale, that really puts some wind in, in the sails of the people who have to do the, to do the fighting. Yeah, no, absolutely. And, and certainly the, uh, the, what I loved about the book is that just underscores the actions of everyday people, because I think, mm -hmm. uh, you know, you look at the present day stuff and it can feel very overwhelming of like, what can I do? And it's like, no, yeah. the small actions do add up and they do matter. And, you know, you, you can't single-handedly you know, save something, but at the same time, collectively yeah. you can. So don't, you yeah. know, I think that was a powerful message of the book. So well, thank you. Thank uh, you. Of course. Um, so I, one of the things that fascinated me was that, uh, that you traveled to all those places, but it was all via YouTube and Google maps. What a yeah. day and age we do live in, right? Like, and so I fit, I fit on the treadmill. It's an amazing app. You can go anywhere. <laughs> yeah. And it's it's interesting because I relate to this. I, I I had decided to make a movie in Colombia without ever having to visit it, and I wrote a script based oh, wow. on it, and kind of did the same thing. So, yeah, just walk me through that process for you. Um, you know, what, what was that like? And you know, yeah, when I when I started this, I was thinking about going to France, um, but you know, of course, I have I have three kids, and then I and money, of course, is a barrier for travel. If I'm not absolutely sure where the book is set. So I did start to, to do the YouTube and the iFit. Now, while I'm writing and then the pandemic comes for, for the second novel, especially, I became, I became reliant upon those things. But if you go on YouTube and you look for a restaurant review in Paris of something that's been around since the twenties, like it's there. So there are people that are taking you on tours all the time. And um, obviously it's better to go in person. And whenever possible, I do that. Um, but if you can't get there, there is a really close second and you can immerse yourself in some of these things. So um, yeah, the iFit was the best because I could walk along the Pyrenees, sort of the route that she took, um, but without being cold or uncomfortable. So 
<laughs> and also, I'm always, always throwing Virginia and, and all of this in, in the faces of my teenage sons. You know, if they complain about something, I'm always like, do you know what Virginia had to go through in November with the Nazis on her tail? So I think yeah. they're pretty, pretty much done hearing about all that. But yeah. <laughs> gotcha. Did you ever try to just like blast the AC and put on a winter coat or something like that just to try to immerse yourself? Or we're like, well, I. Yeah, I mean, I walk outside every day, no matter what, rain, snow, rain, shine, anything. And we have these trails near my house in the woods. So on the really cold days, I definitely would would try to imagine Virginia. They have these very sharp ascents and descents. Uh, so, yeah, I, I did what I could. Mm-hmm. Awesome. And um, what um, what projects are you working on now? I mean, if, if you want, you can tell us about the latest one. Is it um, uh, the night i know the Sisters words of night and fog. that's it i knew the words i was going to jumble them up in a in a scramble but yes can you t- tell us about that and perhaps you know if you're willing what, what yeah. you're also working on currently sure yeah so whatever i'm working on generally leads to the next and when i researched virginia hall if you recall there was this woman i was thinking about who i put to the side another woman from the soe Um, And then there was another American woman named Virginia that I came across in the research. So Sisters of Night and Fog is the story of another American Virginia. She marries a Frenchman. And so she's in France during World War II. And they help on the Comet Allied Pilot Escape Line. And Virginia and her husband, Philippe, were two very much everyday people. And so it was going into that Um, and seeing how they slowly became involved in the machinery of resistance. But the other woman in the book, Violet Jabo, she was, um, you know, she was just a a specially trained SOE spy sharpshooter who wanted vengeance. So she was a really different woman who got into the war for different reasons. And their two stories converge at Ravensbrück concentration camp for women resistors. So that was, that was the next book um, that just came out in March. And then uh, I'm just continuing on right now, looking for these women from history who were remarkable in their own right. And um, I've stumbled upon a woman of, of deep fascination to me who lives nearby. It's not World War II. I feel like I needed to get out of that time period for my own mental health. <laughs> and um, uh, so this one is going to be more of a it's, a, it's a good guy, bad guy, cat and mouse game, two different sides of the law, but both really interesting and likable people. So Gotcha. There's um, if you, I, I forget what it is, or, or I think her name is like Cleo, and I'll, I'll send you the link. But um, it's this wonderful person. It's more like science based, but she highlights women in science that have basically just been omitted from. Oh you know, wow! Like yeah, you know, um, like the, whether coming up with cures for diseases or technology, mm-hmm. and just like completely erased, and the man gets the credit, even though they were literally not, they weren't like an assistant. They were literally that person. They were so doing like, the work next to them. <laughs> yeah. Not even that they're like, they were driving it. And it's just like yeah. the guy <laughs> in, a, in a sense was more of the assistant. So it's, it's very fascinating. I think you would, um, and I'll, I'll provide a link in the description as well for, for viewers. I'll that take it. Not, um, I think, I think that would be a fun exploration. Um, also, oh, yeah. I, what about, um, I found Vera fascinating, right. And, and the, uh, learning that she's basically, you know, the inspiration, um, to uh money penny in in james bond is that you know i know you're trying to take away from uh from world war ii for at least a little bit but would would she be a subject for you ever 
you know, she was very much on my radar. I was so fascinated with her and I did a deep dive into some research thinking I might write about her. And then I found out one of my friends, Laura Kamoy, who writes outstanding historical fiction is taking her story on. So I'm going to leave Vera Atkins to Laura and I know it will be fabulous. So <laughs> awesome. Awesome. Um, are there any women that, uh, that, that you saw and would love to, you know, like you, you think are amazing, but like, just, it didn't, wasn't the right fit for you to write a book about at least currently. Well, there's a lot of, I mean, I have a lot of manuscripts in the, in the drawer. I'm very personally interested in women of the Bible and um, legends and true history around them. So I had started to write a novel about Mary Magdalene, but nobody wanted it. (laughs) So um, I, I, yeah, I, I mean, I pitched it as like, it's sort of like Game of Thrones, all the violence, none of the sex. And they were like, no. So it's weird. Um, but uh, and then like Esther, I think women in biblical historical could be a very cool subgenre. But I am told right now that um, publishers are not interested. So maybe if I ever can reach a certain level of sales, I can write about really whatever I want. <laughs> so we'll see. I don't know. I, I find that fascinating because like there's, um, you know, through my work in podcasting, there's there's so much about, you know, um, the, the Mary Magdalene, um, you know, portion right. of the Bible and, and, and just, just women in that time period in general. Um, yeah. and, and just the amount of research coming out, um, in, in, yeah. in terms of that stuff. And like, um, there's, there's a book with one of the people that I work with, she's writing about how the, the seven deadly sins essentially, um, form the patriarchy against women. Cause it's not even in the oh, Bible. That's- like that is what I want, but I keep being told that I need to keep writing about more secular things. But one day I'm, I'm going deeper down those holes, but I also trust timing in the process. Someday I've got all of my little Mary Magdalene stuff here on my desk. So it'll, it'll, it'll happen. Well, for what it's worth, you'll have at least a reader in me. Oh, good. (laughs) Thank you. I'm going to tell them that. (laughs) Um, So yes, whenever, whenever you get around to that, Um, any sort of, I, I guess two things. Number one, any sort of advice for aspiring writers out there? And two, anything that you want to promote while you have the opportunity? Yeah, I, just whatever you're writing about, make it make sure it's something you're obsessed with, like that you just can't get enough of. It doesn't necessarily have to be what you know. I know Stephen King says it. It, it helps. But it's just where do you want to go on your computer and your brain every day? Um, but also be careful with that because, you know, you are what you feed yourself with. So the books really become with the research, they become and movies and anything, whatever you're spending your time in, it becomes a part of you. So you have to kind of curate what you allow in. I would say that. So that's my advice for writers. And I'm sorry, what was the second part of the question? Well, uh, uh, before I get to that second part, um, I'm just also curious of like, um, you know, at what point do you, for you at least, um, is, is a continuing along that path viable versus like, you know what, I'm just wasting my time here, time to move on. Cause, and then the reason I, Usually ask, I go ahead. No, you go ahead. Finish what you're going to say. Oh, I was just going to give it some context because I think, you know, um, to me in a lot of ways, like the people that I work with as artists, it's that voice of a resistance of like, you know what, that idea is good. Right. But there's a better one here. And so you're just always kind of abandoning something in lieu of like something greater because it's just that voice in your head and telling you to move mm-hmm. on, but never complete any of them. So I'm just kind of curious from your perspective on that. 
Well, for me, it ends up being what I get a contract to write. So once I have a contract, I know I, I it's time to write about it, you know? So I, and I have, I do feel like I have a thousand tabs open in my brain at all times. Um, but when I, when it really starts to, to focus sharply where the research rises to meet what I'm doing, like, I mean, and I'm, again, I bring in like the prayer and meditative aspects of it, but I, I basically just said, all right, give me two dynamite women on two sides of the law. And within a day I had, I had it, you know, it's just, so when that kind of thing feeds you, and then I pitched it to my agent and she was like, Oh, you know, so then you kind of get those affirmations. And now what I'll do is I'm going to spend the next probably three months writing 50 pages in a synopsis, and then I'll give it to her. And if she's, if she's all fired up and she can sell it, then I'll write it. And if people tell me nobody wants it, then I have to abandon it and move on. (laughs) So it's just, That's just how I do it, but yeah. Fair enough. Hey, it's a very practical way of going about it. Yeah, yeah, it is a um, business in the end, so. <laughs> yeah, people forget that. Um, so speaking of that, I, th- I think, so the, the second question, I'll rephrase it in the sense, like, what's um, what's the best way for people to support you? Or what do you want them to know about you? So that way, you know, we can get the Mary Magdalene books out there when the time Oh, comes. yeah, I appreciate that. Yeah, so I, I have a local independent bookseller who I will sign personalize anything that they, that you would order from them and they ship it anywhere. And they're called park books in Severna park links are on my website. Um, and all of my social handles are just my name, ericarobuck.com. I'm most active on Facebook and Instagram. So, uh, you know, I'll respond to comments there. That's usually where you can find me online. Um, and then also on Goodreads, I recommend, I love historical fiction. I'm a reader first. And so every time I read something that I think is awesome, I'll recommend it there. So if people are, and I'm on my website and all of my pages. So if people are looking for historical recommendations, you can find that there too. Amazing. So I'll, uh, for the audience, all of that will be linked to in the description as well to make it easy. Yeah, so. Great. Awesome. Well, thank you so much uh, for taking the time out of your day and continue thank to do you. amazing work. I, you know, I, I was really blown away that, by this book and um, can't wait to read thank more. You. I appreciate it. Thank you.